0: This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community.
1: Amateur radio faces many threats in the 21st century, and among the worst is the inexorable increase in noise. If you tune through the HF band, you'll often hear noise, and lots of it. Now, if you're blessed with living out in the country, it may not be too bad, but for those of us who dwell elsewhere, it can sometimes be serious. Listen to this. What you've just heard is noise on 20 meters at my station. I have no idea what's causing it, but I intend to go out and see if I can find it. And this is just one example. When someone in my household is washing clothes, I can hear the swish, swish, swish on my radio on every band from 40 meters all the way through 10 meters. The International Amateur Radio Union recently did a study that confirmed what all of us really knew which was that all of these varieties of noise are increasing every single day, and they're making it more difficult for hams to operate. It is having an impact on other radio services as well. So what can we do about it? Well, the knee-jerk response is to say the FCC should be taking care of this, since many consumer electronic devices are emitting signals that are clearly illegal, right? However, today's grossly underfunded FCC can barely perform its core responsibilities. It has been demonstrated in many instances that the FCC is not going to enforce rules against noisy devices encountered by individual hams. The only time the FCC gets involved is when noise interference becomes an issue for a large user or a large service, let's say. For example, Let's say that a noise source suddenly appears and causes severe interference to the local police department repeater network. The FCC will get involved in that instance pretty quickly because it's a public safety issue. But when it comes to the interference woes of amateur radio operators, the FCC just doesn't have the time or the resources to investigate. So what's next? Well, the obvious answer is that you have to take care of it yourself. And one of the best tools is an inexpensive handheld shortwave receiver. I have a pocket-sized model that I keep around the shack here and I consider it to be a pretty valuable tool. Now you might think I go walking around my neighborhood with this thing trying to find where noise sources are coming from and that's not actually true although it does occur to me from time to time. The first step really is to make sure that the noise is not coming from in or around your house. The easiest way to do that is to tune in the noise with the handheld receiver, and then take the receiver to your circuit breaker panel. Presumably, you can still hear it there, of course. As you're listening to the noise, start flipping off the circuit breakers one after another after another. What may happen is that if you're lucky, you may flip one of those breakers and the noise will suddenly stop. If it does, you've at least partially located the source of the noise. Let's say you look at the breaker and you see that the circuit controls power to, I don't know, the master bedroom. Turn that breaker back on. If the noise returns, you're on the right track. You make a beeline for the bedroom with your radio. You can move the radio about the room and see if the signal becomes stronger, or just sit the radio somewhere and play around and see what happens. By play around, I mean, of course, start unplugging things. You'll eventually pull the plug on your culprit, and the noise will suddenly vanish. Of course, the job isn't over yet. Do you just throw away the offending device? That probably isn't very practical. In all likelihood, you're going to have to move to the next phase, which is attempting to cure the problem. You might try getting a Type 43 ferrite core and wrapping about 10 turns of the power cord through it. That usually kills the noise completely, or at least reduces it substantially. All of this assumes, however, that the noise is inside your home or inside your apartment, as the case may be. It could be coming from the neighbor's home. If that's the case, at least in my experience, the problem becomes more difficult by orders of magnitude because now you have another human being involved. If you don't know your neighbor well, or worse, you're on bad terms, it's pretty unlikely that that person's going to allow you to come in their house and try to find the noise source. Can you imagine inviting this ham radio operator that you don't know very well to come into your home and go down to your circuit panel box and just start flipping breakers while listening to a radio he's carrying around? I don't think so. Most normal folks wouldn't be very welcoming of that sort of thing. Now, some people say that this is the time when you should get a hold of your FCC office and send the Fed's after him. Well, good luck with that. At ARRL, our experience in recent years has been that the FCC is extremely reluctant to become involved in these things. So what do you do? Do you just give up? Rather than give up, I prefer to use the word accommodate. And by that, I mean try to find a way to work around the problem. If the offending noise is at a specific frequency, perhaps you can just avoid that frequency, as irritating as that may be. If it's a wideband form of interference throughout the entire HF band, your options are obviously much more limited. There are devices out there, I know in fact uh, MFJ makes one, that act as separate, what you might call diversity receivers. They essentially feed the local noise back out of phase in an attempt to cancel it. Now These can be very effective, but they require a certain amount of adjustment and sometimes readjustment every time you change frequencies. In other words, they're kind of a pain to use, or at least they can be. When they work, they work very well, and they can reduce broadband noise to an acceptable level. Another, and perhaps easier way to accommodate, is to reduce your RF sensitivity. Most transceivers have an RF gain control, especially HF transceivers. Some transceivers also include a push-button attenuator. These are neglected controls, but they can have a world of benefit. I'll give you a personal example. In fact, I'll let you hear it. At my station, I have a broadband noise that I can hear from roughly 40 meters up through about 15 meters. It's particularly strong on 30 and 20 meters. I can't determine where it's coming from, but I'm fairly certain that it's somewhere in the local neighborhood. The strength of the noise varies, and on particularly bad days, it can rise to about S4. Here's what it sounds like. This noise is fairly constant, and it's present around the clock. One of these days I'll track it down, but until then, well, I just toggle my attenuator button. Here's the noise again, and you'll know the moment that I switch in the attenuator. Ah, sweet relief. Yes, I made my transceiver a bit deaf, but I can still hear plenty of signals. In fact, with the noise reduced, I can actually hear somewhat more than I did before. ARRL and the International Amateur Radio Union are continuing to fight this battle against increasing noise. As we come up with new and novel ways of dealing with noise, you'll see the articles popping up in QST and QEX magazine. It's also worthwhile to visit the ARRL Laboratory page on the web at www.arrl.org. They have samples of specific types of noise you can hear that will help you identify the problem. So at the end of the day, you either find the noise source in your home, and if you're lucky, you can eliminate it. If the noise sources are outside your home, maybe you'll be lucky enough to have an extremely friendly and cooperative neighbor, in which case he'll allow you to place Sherlock Holmes in his house. These people are called unicorns, by the way. (laughs) I forgot to mention that power lines can often be powerful noise sources. If you can track it down to a particular pole, the utility company may want to hear from you. If there is electrical arcing taking place, they want to fix that problem before it turns into something much worse. I'm on the telephone with David Hodge n six a n good afternoon David
2: uh, good afternoon Steve nice to uh to uh, speak to you, uh, not on the radio
1: <laughs> <laughs> and David you are at caltech what's your what's your title there
2: uh my title is research engineer um I consider myself more of a of a good hand eye coordination guy rather than a brain um, I think there are plenty of really, really powerful brains on campus, so I don't try to fit into that uh, into that category. <laughs>
1: Are you the only amateur radio operator in your specific area?
2: Uh, no. Um, well, it, what's interesting about my my specific area, a, a, at the moment, I have been working at Caltech for about three years. I worked for Caltech a long, long time ago, sort of my first career from 77 to 87, in the biology electronics shop building experimental test equipment for neurobiology, but I've been working with a radio astronomer named Sandy Weinreb, who um, <clears throat> is responsible for the receiver, the, the electronics that gets a fast radio burst signal, which is what we're looking for. Oh,
1: those have been very much in the science news lately, yes.
2: Yeah, the sub-millisecond to a few millisecond long intense bursts of energy We're trying to figure out where they're coming from. And uh, so I've been working with Sandy, uh, building electronics, learning, basically learning from scratch to do what I've been doing. Um, I'm one ham with Sandy. There are some other hams, I think, in the astronomy department at Caltech. There are certainly other hams on campus. Sometimes it's hard to know who's a ham and who isn't because uh, we're not necessarily in a cohesive group or club, so... Um, there are probably more hams on campus than I'm aware.
1: <laughs> well, not to put you on the spot, David, but can you elaborate a little bit from a layman's perspective on what a fast radio burst actually is?
2: Well, I did a little research myself just to make sure that I wasn't out in the weeds. They're generally extra galactic. They're, as I said, sub-millisecond to a few milliseconds. So they're very fast bursts. Uh, they're rather intense. I read, I think, on... on um, the uh, wiki site that a a cell phone on the moon on Earth is maybe sort of an equivalent of uh, energy level. As somebody else wrote, they rival the brightest radio sky sources in flux density. If if you're looking in the right place, it would it's like somebody flashed a super bright LED light at you from you know down the street, or maybe even a laser. Although I don't think the it's not you know collimated like a laser. We've been looking for them in the um, and I, I say we with a. I'm one of the spokes and one of the wheels. We we've been building equipment that's working in the 1280 to 1530 megahertz range, so it's 1.2 to 1.5 gigahertz. One of the graduate students who's involved in in this greater group has three dishes, the electronics of which I built by hand, incidentally. And one of his little array is almost. Not to put it down, but in comparison, a toy array saw this most recent uh, radio burst in, uh, I think it was end of April, straight on. And uh, so he's made what might be considered a pretty big discovery. So I think
1: he's assured his PhD, which makes me very happy. (laughs) When you call it a toy array, uh, physically, about how big is it?
2: Well, we're talking three... um, I guess you could say, you know, the equivalent of a satellite dish that's say four meters across. And the feed point is a um oh, I can't remember exact dimensions, but it's maybe five or six inches across. It's a it's a it's an aluminum cylinder that has been welded and there's a back plate that's been welded to it and a couple of, of honest to God cake pans and I forget the manufacturer of them, but aluminum cake pans with, you know, vertical walls where it's been rolled down for You know, it looks nice and it won't cut you. Um, One of those inside another put on the back, which I think helps with something called, uh, well, I can't remember. I I don't know much about the telescope functioning. But that uh, telescope, that cylinder has two probes. So you've got two probes at 90 degrees to get vertical and horizontal polarization, essentially, or two different polarizations. And at those probes is a a low-noise amplifier, the first version was actually uh, designed with a, I think it's a G8, I forget his pref- or suffix, but uh, a, a amateur radio product as a low noise amplifier. And then that goes into two boxes. One is known as the, the front-end board, which uh, filters the incoming uh, RF, and then process, and then um, converts it to a light signal. So through fiber optic cable, it can go, you know, 500 feet or a couple of kilometers, depending on where the uh, antenna is in an array. Because uh, the idea is to make um, Chris, this Chris Bot, uh, Botchanek, has three telescopes in his simple array to find this thing in, in April. Our uh, original proposal was a ten array. It's called the Deep Synoptic Array of ten antennas. And we're building now the 110 antenna version. So, from the front end box, you have the signals going back to a back end box, and the communication is through fiber optic. The back end box converts the light back to RF, and it's mixed uh, mixed down to a uh, a pass band which has the information in which we're it you know it corresponds to the 1280 to uh, 1530. Megahertz bandwidth, and then that's put into um, digital signal processing using uh, uh, GPUs or big servers. They're made by NVIDIA, I think. Uh, And then there's a special software that somebody's written that will sift through all of this stuff. I mean to me it's like looking for a needle in a really, really big haystack. I mean basically you're looking after the fact for the right shape, pulse of the right and you know, the right parameters. That is an indication of a sick I think what they're hoping is that they can program it so that the detection will happen within sixty seconds of the event being received at the antennas so that a network of of people around the world can know that, that this detection has, has happened. And one of the advantages of knowing about the detections right away is that other, I don't know how much optical comes into this, but um, other uh, satellites or detection devices can look at different wavelengths, whether it's X-ray or what have you, and tell a lot about, um, you know, is there a correlation between what's happening in the X-ray spectrum or some other part of the electromagnetic spectrum? Does that correlate with the signal that, uh, you know, that is supposedly this FRB detection? So it's amazing what is going on. And I have I knew nothing about radio astronomy other than the fact that it existed three years ago. So this has been, um, I don't know, it feels like if you could peel my brain away and pour the information in, that might have been an easier way to, it's just, it's just been, it's been an incredible experience to be part of this.
1: And what, um, you mentioned the front end, the back end components, Uh, what parts are you particularly involved in either designing, building, or both?
2: Uh, Design, I've had nothing to do with, Sandy's really the designer, he's had help from uh, a couple of graduate students, uh, one who is now a postdoc, Uh, but I've done a lot of the you know, somebody will hand me a PC board that was designed. The first ones of these, in fact, I think the ones that Chris is using for his three antenna array, um, I built those boards by hand. So I was using tweezers and a microscope to pick up, you know, 0402, 0603 components, depending on the size, and, you know, placing them on a board, um, not using a wave soldering machine, but a hot plate to, uh, to solder them, and then, you know, build them into a box. Um, and then make sure the box was working.
1: As weak as these bursts are, it's phenomenal that you're able to detect them at all.
2: Well, Sandy has designed um, low-noise amplifiers for a long time. That's one of his specialties. And um, there's another thing that I had never done before, uh, handling discrete chip transistors. A lot of hams have touched transistors before, but they're usually the kind that are in a can with three leads or... These days, it would be a surface mount, uh, might even be a combination pack of uh, of transistors, but it would have at least three leads. Well, this, this chip is, say, 300 by 300 by 100 microns, and I have to pick that up with a pair of tweezers and saw, and uh, use uh, conductive epoxy to put it on a PC board in the right place. I have to wire bond the, um, uh, in this case, it's, uh, uh, I think they're hemp's H-E-M-P-T,
1: transistors if i got that
2: right but it's a, a gate drain and source that need to be
1: connected in the circuit so that was all new to me you must have phenomenal eyesight or you, <laughs> you have visual assistance of some kind
2: oh this is all done under a microscope i mean certainly i was gonna say <laughs> yeah, wire wire bonders have um a uh, this particular one has a as a mouse pad basically you put your the, the thing you want to wire bond, you have to put that on a platform, and the mouse allows you to move this platform around under the microscope, which is aligned with the tip of this um, uh, wedge bonding uh, machine. And when you get the alignment right, you bring the wedge bonder down to the surface where you want that bond to be made, and then the machine will will produce the bond for you. And then you have to spool the wire out and bring it down to the next point where you'll make the second bond. And uh, that that, uh, just takes a little hand-eye coordination and some knowledge of what's what.
1: This takes homebrewing to a whole new level, I would say.
2: Uh, You know, we talked about, uh, I'm set up to to do a lot of my work now in-house, in-home rather. Um, We talked about bringing a wire bonder over here and decided that was probably not a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's been quite an adventure. Uh, and and to have the original ten antennas are in place and have been working, and they detected something in um, I think it was announced in July of 2019, uh, and then to have something that I have my fingerprints in discover this thing in uh, in April of this
1: year for for Chris um, is pretty cool, and something that is entirely mysterious still. As you say, extragalactic, but as I understand it, what is causing it is not entirely known.
2: Uh, this is true. And I think one of the. There's apparently one aspect of radio, fast radio bursts um, that can help determine what sort of source it's emanating from. And. Uh, that has to do with its polarity, and from what I read, uh, the polarity—if—if if a signal has a strong polarity, that's an indication that it's coming from a, an extremely. These are this this writer's words. Extremely strong magnetic field. A source with an extremely strong magnetic field. I'd never heard of a magnetometer. Excuse me, a magnetar. A magnetar.
1: A magnetar. Um, yes.
2: Magnetars. Um, apparently, this particular uh, detection. Uh, of Chris's in in April uh, is coming from a celestial object that has a, I had it on my screen here earlier, but it, it, you know, however they designate these things, you know, XYZG-1427 or something like that. It's got some designator like that. And um, they suspect that that is a magnetar. So the result of that discovery is there's a very good chance yeah, SGR one nine three five plus two one five four. Aha, and I guess if I did more of this, I'd have that memorized. They suspect that this may very well indicate that, at least in our galaxy, because I think this is in 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 the galaxy um, that that is a good indication that you know we found we found a mag. Well, we we know that these this particular FRB comes from a magnetar. As somebody said, I wouldn't say it's the nail in the coffin that we've figured out that fast radio bursts come from magnetars. This is Emily Petroff, an astronomer at the University of Amsterdam in Netherlands. But it's by far the most promising piece of evidence that we've found. So There are other theories, and uh, they range from some extraterrestrial intelligence source, to say a supermassive black hole or an older neutron star. and uh, I'm not sure I can
1: elaborate on what those things are. <laughs> well, I doubt that many people in our audience even realized until today perhaps, that amateur radio operators were involved at this level of cutting edge research.
2: It's uh, I think um, you know Palomar Observatory, one of the guys working there for a long time, is now back at uh, at Caltech on campus Um, so I you know I think uh, as our amateur radio interests are so varied it's it's amazing to find what the ham and what the professional in the same body are doing (laughs) oh yeah I agree yeah I, I, I was always mystified by the fact that there was such a thing as radio astronomy that there were signals that somehow people are I mean you turn your receiver around what are you listening for and this is this has just opened up this whole, how, how this works. It's, it's just amazing to me what radio astronomers have learned by studying electromagnetic energy coming from off the planet.
1: Well, thank you, David. I appreciate it. Oh, well, my pleasure. Thank you, Steve.
0: Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic, at arrl.org This episode is copyright arrl and all rights are reserved I'm Sabrina Jackson KC1JMW See you next time